Welcome to episode 233 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Four years ago, in February 2017, I started to actually write my book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. I had been writing it for years, but making no real progress. Finally, I committed to a writing program, and although it wasn't fun for me, I had the first draft done in three months. Once I realized the book was going to be a reality, I decided I wanted to do more than publish my book and check that off my life goals list. I wanted this book to have a strong launch, so I did well on Amazon and subsequently was read by more people. This means I needed people to write an Amazon book review, so the book sales page had a lot of social proof. I don't know about you. I love reading product reviews, but I don't often write them. I'd also been on book launch teams and not prioritized getting the review done in a timely manner because life intervened. The reality is, this book was a way bigger deal for me than anyone else. So how did I manage to get 150 reviews worldwide within one week of my launch? I asked, and then asked again, then nudged, followed up, thanked, and asked again. I shared a review copy of the book with the nearly 350 people who signed up for my launch team. Signing up was the first ask. Then, I sent a series of personalized mail-merged emails asking each team member to write the review using a few prompts I gave them and then email the review text to me. When it was time, I asked each person to post it on Amazon. I included detailed instructions and their specific review text in the email to make it super easy to follow through. I've heard great feedback about my book launch strategy from those who are on my team and wrote reviews. They felt like they were supported all the way from setting their intention to posting the review on Amazon. I know that feeling too. When an organization or individual makes it easy for me to follow through on my intentions to do something good, something helpful, something that will have a positive impact, I'm thrilled. Being on those launch teams where I didn't get that kind of support made me feel bad after a while because I knew I wasn't following through on my intentions. I think those authors were afraid to ask and ask again and that led to a less than positive result for both of us. Your challenge for this week, commit to asking for the support that you need. Know that people want to help you. Make helping you as easy as possible. It's your priority, so it's your job to be politely persistent in your follow-up. When you get the support you need, you're thrilled, and the person who helped you feels awesome too. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a digital futurist keynote speaker who translates the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. He's a gift for bringing people together online and offline. Prior to speaking, he worked for the Department of Defense where he managed a global team that deployed collaboration and cybersecurity solutions across all branches of the military. He then pursued his dream job helping companies embrace the rate of change and new ways to innovate. As a founder of iSocialFans, he has helped launch digital and influencer strategies with the world's most iconic brands like Dell, EMC, Adobe, IBM, and UFC. He has worked in 76 countries, highlighting his passion for change, collaboration, and technology. He's been recognized as a top 20 digital transformation influencer, a top 50 most mentioned user by CMOs on Twitter, and a top 25 social business leader of the future by The Economist. His followers on social media and podcast downloads rank in the hundreds of thousands, resulting in Brian being an influencer for 19 of the Fortune 100 companies. Please join me in welcoming Brian Fanzo. All right. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited for this conversation. That is a hell of an intro, I got to tell you, Brian. <laughs> Thanks for being <laughs> I, here. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's my speaker agent uh, doing, you know, shout out to Michelle Joyce. She uh, worked out way better than I ever did. Every, everyone I did before was never near as uh, well put together. So she did a better job of talking about me than I, I can do myself. That's true for most people, but a little shout out for her does 
goes 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 well there. So you're you're joining us in your home office in Virginia. Uh, thrilled that you'd be on the show. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I like that. You know, how do I define leadership? You know, I love that question because I think. What, you know, it kind of goes a lot into what I thought of, you know, what my world kind of had been opened up to in the last eight years, because I feel like for me, so much of my life was, you know, what I assumed, right? And I, I very much lived like a very much of the white picket fence. I had the three kids, was married 13 years. I did all, like literally was checking every box, worked for the government, had the long term job. And then I decided to kind of blow a lot of that all up. Right. And but I think a lot of that was because of like my my kind of reckless, you know, really realizing how much I didn't know and realizing how much my views were shaped on, you know, things that, you know, were, were different than, you know, maybe I didn't, you know, kind of realize at the time. But when I, when I heard that, when you asked that question, the first thing that came to mind, it was, it was a very young age of when I, uh, when, when I kind of looked at someone as a leader, which was my dad. And the, when I think of a leader, it's that, you know, sacrificing for the greater good, and, and being able to shepherd people towards where we all want to go without having to be the one that's either in the front or the back. And so for me as a leader, I think, you know, my dad did a lot of sacrificing um, to lead, you know, uh, you know coach our, our teams, lead our organizations, lead my brothers and I. And so I think for me that like that concept, I think um, just like what a leader is and what it means to me is it's someone that is willing, you know, to sacrifice what's maybe best for them for the for the greater good of the of the whole and do it in a manner that leads us all in the direction that even some of us don't even know we need to go at the time i'm not surprised that you have a familial connection to the term because i think of you as such a family guy um but yeah you know and and that in that context it makes sense that the leader isn't putting themselves necessarily first because they're thinking about the longevity of their family but I guess it translates too in a business context because the you know a business leader wants that business to thrive. It's not about them personally. It's about making sure that everyone understands the direction we all have to go to get to the greatness. Um, yeah. So all right. So tell me, like, roll this back for us a little bit. When when did you start thinking you might have some of these skills or aptitudes? So, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, uh, divorce and, and, you know, even just emerging in my career, I've done a lot of like reverse engineering, right? And like looking back on your life. Um, and like one of the, the things for me, a strong suit has always been that I've, I've always worked, I, you know, I, I call myself a multi-hyphenated entrepreneur, right? I have multiple passions, multiple um, things I focus on. And it's been my way since I was in high school. I, you know, I didn't really realize any of this until recently, but like in high school, I was on the baseball team. I DJed at the local skating rink. I was a thespian um, at, at school as, as being part of the plays. Uh, my favorite class was home ec and yearbook. Uh, and so I was literally the person that was like this broad stroke. And for me back then, it was like a weird, it was a weird, like, I couldn't believe how everyone else didn't like to do all those things. And like, it didn't mean much. But college actually was like the time I think I got the aha moment because I went to college, played college hockey, and I was a computer science major, and I was a president of my fraternity. And literally no one that was in my fraternity played hockey or was a computer science major. No one that played hockey was anywhere close to me. And like, I started to bridge those worlds together. And it was my sophomore year in college, and college was a struggle for me, like academics-wise, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I was very, you know, active, very, uh, you know, involved. I ended up like, you know, I grew up in Virginia Beach, uh, and I loved the beach. And like, everyone always told me, I was like, would you ever stay at college over the summer? I'm like, no, never. That's ridiculous. Like, I'm a beach guy. The very first summer, I was like, nope, I'm staying at college. Like, I loved, like, I just loved it so much. But my sophomore year, they um, had to rewrite the bylaws of our fraternity. Um, we ended up having a, a, the, the president of our fraternity end up getting sick, had to drop out of school. And I was voted in as the president of, of the fraternity before technically I was eligible. And during that same month, I was voted the assistant captain of the hockey team, which was the first time someone that was on the third line. I was not a great hockey player. I was a very smart hockey player. I could be in the right spot at the right time, scored a lot of goals. But as God-given talent, not the God-given talent. I was short, uh, overweight, never really liked to run, but I was very, you know, played the sport for a long time. And so for me, it was like this weird piece of like, 
holy cow, like I'm in these roles. And, but I never felt as like, it was something I had to step into or become different. It was like, there was a gap that I was comfortable filling. And, but I think to answer your question, funny enough, it was five years into my career working for the U S government. And I was working as a contractor and um, I had raised my hand and got promoted to take over this team. But then when I took over the team, like my, the, the person that hired me ended up being my employee, which I always thought was like, you know, one of those weirdly interesting, like evolving roles. And I started traveling like 54 weeks a year. I was traveling, uh, 54 weeks, 54 countries in four years. I travel about 40 weeks a year. And so I grew this giant team, but my team was all remote. And so much of what I was learning was like everyone I was hiring was older than I was because in cybersecurity in like 2008, like it didn't even evolve. Like no one even like knew it was in school. And weirdly enough, um, it was, so it was 2008, uh, I was awarded the top leader in my company. And it was the weirdest feeling because I thought they got it wrong. Like so much so that like, I was like, wait a second, like when I'm in the office, I was literally getting mentored by like the senior VPs working with like the center of excellence team. My team was remote. Most of them, like if I had met them once at the time, I was like, that was it. And I hired people that were smarter than me. I hired people that were longer in the industry. And honestly, I hired people that in many cases were willing to do what I was not because of just kind of where I was. I was so young and like naive. And it was that moment. Like I remember having to accept the award and being very much like, wait, it's like, what do you mean? Like I'm the leader. And it, you know, it had a little bit to do with my speaking career, which is kind of a, a beauty in that piece was someone kind of, you know, my, my, who ended up being my reverse mentor for 17 years, Sandeep, who was at my company. He just came and looked at, he just came down and talked to me. He's like, Brian, you have to accept this in the sense that your skill set is not that you, that you seek out and you want to run over everyone, but you truly do want that like, you get joy from those that are around you succeeding. And that was the, that was the moment where I like, when I like started to look back and I was like, Oh, college and high school. And, but I can tell you the thing that's been most interesting about that was recently I've been doing a lot of self-awareness because I'm very confident. I am very outgoing. I'm an extrovert but I blindly believed that meant I was very self-aware, which I learned quickly, uh, was a massive mistake that my own, like that had to come back around. And so one of my traits that I've discovered and learned was like, I, that is like my love language. My, if I can see my friends succeed, the people I love, the people I care about, that's where I get my most joy way more than me taking a stage is, you know, and, and it, some people that from the outside in might not see that in me until you get to know me a little bit, but when I started to look back, it was that award that I got for that company. And when my boss was like, no, it's because you care about these other people getting all of the FaceTime. And like, you know, every time I was like nominating people, I would make sure, you know, like those type of things that you have to do. And so weirdly I have like that in my background and it was a, an award that I didn't think was for me. And I couldn't figure even how to accept it. Uh, that really is that, that like aha moment for me, you know, as far as leadership. Wow. Okay. Brian, there's so many good things to unpack here. <laughs> so many good things. First of all, nothing you said just now describes describing yourself surprises me. I don't feel like I know you super, super well, but the, like, I know a lot, we have a lot of people in common and like, I'm this, it's, it's sort of like, Oh yeah, that makes total sense. That's Brian. So it's nice that you come with instructions. <laughs> and at least have instructions that match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's nice that you come thing. with like, this is who I am. Because um, yeah, it's true. I think because people are cynical, they don't always see like that goodwill the way you mean it. Um, I was also a kid who hung out in lots of different crowds. Um, and I love that I can move between them all the time. And I love my favorite thing to do today and always, always back then is to get people from different communities into the same room and have a party together. Um, love it. I love the synergy. I love when the unexpected, uncommon commonalities that people like suddenly create new relationships that they would never have met each other without me. I love that. So totally get that on that front. But it also, um, it says something about who you are, like you, like you relate to a lot of different people. You probably have empathy. Like you have both an insider outsider perspective on life. It sounds like, is that, is that be accurate? Yeah. So like you can see things because you've been in it. You, you're not the kid who's always on the outside because you've been in it because you were the president. Right. <laughs> like, you, you know what I mean? Like you were clearly in it, but you also had an appreciation for like, wow, not everyone feels like they can be here. Like I've got great friends that would never come to this space or that space or the other. So I, I get that. And then it also sounds like it really influenced who you were in the workforce 
Um, and I'm grateful that someone did recognize that because, you know, you could have been also completely overlooked depending on the company culture. Um, but, to, to, you know, the higher people that are smarter than you, that will do the things that you weren't sure that you knew to do yourself, like you were like, it's a little too green to know if it was, you really want to do that. I mean, that's smart. But most people would not do that, you know, because they'd be so fearful. And we can, why do you I think you're not fearful? Like, why, why give, was that okay? Because of my dad. So my dad, um, my dad owned a very successful peanut brittle company um, and made peanut brittle. He ended up, you know, worldwide uh, company. And I was the oldest of three boys. And almost everyone that didn't know us from the inside just assumed, you know, go through high school, go into the family business, live that life, like, you know, and very easily. But my dad always instilled in us kids on owning and finding our own path. But also the the thing that my dad always would tell talk to us about, like, and it, I mean, it was every dinner table always was how much you had to get to know the people and the importance of a handshake and the importance of your network and the people that are around you, not only being willing to surround yourself with people that know what you don't know, but being opened minded to realize that if it isn't something you know, you can be just as successful being the person that connects those dots as the person that knows all of those things. And if something was instilled in my, I mean, my dad, and I'm very blessed, like, you know, I, my dad has been like the guy, you know, he's my the hero, the one I looked up to. Um, and for when I think about that for me as a dad, right, my oldest is 10, she turns 11 next week. Um, I've worked really hard on like the be yourself and the characters. But I would tell you, like, when, when you said that, like, I don't know if there's a lot of people that can say they were parts of lots of groups. And to me, that's something like even like a bigger picture of like, why was our culture not enabling that as much? And like, what can we do to facilitate that? Because I do believe in empathy and caring and, and like, you know, even things that people find out about me that they sometimes are surprised. Like, I mean, I, in 2003, I was the grand marshal of the LGBTQ uh, parade in San Francisco. Right. Like, and like, I was like, wait a second, where does that come? And like, but my best friend came out to me at 12. I was, you know, I got ordained to, to get her married. I became very active in our high school, you know, being the one that was bringing all these groups together. And for me, like, I think that's also like the life, ex like being exposed to that, being like, I was raised Catholic, like raised, you know, and I was very well off. You know, like, so like there were some things that we were like, I was bucketed here, but then I had some very blessed exposures that allowed me to grow and to realize how valuable that would be to me. And honestly, it also allowed me to know myself enough in like a weird way. Cause like, I mean, some of my decisions in my career, people are look and be like, what? I mean, I left the government and cybersecurity at its height. Like literally it's, it's exploding. I'm getting promoted. And I had this like realization that I, I was getting complacent. And I knew where I was, that complacency was only going to, I was going to make a lot of money. What I mean, a lot of money. And I was growing this massive team, but that complacency scared me so much at my core because I wanted to make a bigger impact. And I was like, oh, this is way too easy. Like, I mean, I, I got to the point where I could cherry pick what countries I wanted to go to, 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 to audit my team. And like for one year, I literally just picked all of my, like, I didn't do one thing, like, as a leader, I didn't want, everything was like, oh, I, I feel like going there to snowboard. I feel like going to that country because I've never been, like, you know, like, and you know how you get that feeling. And so for me, it was, you know, my dad instilled in us, you know, our, us, my, you know, my two brothers and I, just this, this commitment to understanding the importance of surrounding yourself with those great people. And he never, never was one that needed to take credit for any of the success. It was, you know, he was confident in what he did, but was always put that out there. And I think that just allowed me to kind of flourish in that kind of environment. It's like, it's like living with Dale Carnegie or Les Brown. I mean, like, that's kind of amazing, you know, <laughs> it, to have that around, you know, I have a three and five-year-old and I'm like, how am I, how am I weaving these messages? I mean, they're not happening right now. We're not having dining dinner conversations right now, you know, but we're, we're, we're actually right now we're working on the, what was your favorite thing today? Like, we're just try, like, just trying to get them to like pick something and have that kind of like, why, what do you like? You know, yes. it's, it's still such a, <laughs> well, and I tell you what, there's, I'll have to tell you a study. Uh, someone sent it to me uh, that the seven year olds at seven is when the, the brain is the most curious and they're most open-minded. Uh, and someone sent it to me after my older two were over seven. And when I started reverse engineering, I'm like, and so my, my youngest turns seven um, next Friday. And I was like, oh, so you have a couple of years to like get your head around that. Cause I, cause to me, like, that's amazing. Something, like something beautiful, right? Like, and being a dad, like for me, like 
my, my daughter see I wear pink a lot on stage and I and I wear my hat and like and like even my daughters were, were in here this morning um and I was getting ready for my, a presentation I gave a, a virtual keynote this morning and they were laughing because I, I literally had I had a pink well, my pink long sleeve shirt on I had my pink shoes on and my oldest looks, looks at me and she's like daddy I never have to worry about you complaining or you know telling me what to wear to school and I, I like grabbed her and gave her a big hug and I was like I know you're saying that because like you're kind of like jabbing at me but it's like that's like the most proud moment I've had like in the last months with you like you just you saying that like made me want you to like yes because like I you know having three like oh so I, you know as a dad you get it but uh yeah the seven-year-old thing I'll have to send you that study it kind of blew that's my mind. pretty cool uh if we do we'll throw it in the show notes because I'm sure a lot of people will be keen to hear that yes for sure that, that's a really interesting point too also um like the influence that you're having. So you you have this great influence from your dad. You showed up at work in a certain way and then you're having influence as well. Well, all right. So here's, here's the question though. Uh, you talked about the complacency. What year was it that you made the decision to leave this kind of golden handcuffs, cushy career moment? 2012. 2012. Now, was this like a spend a year building a business on the side decision or was it like, I'm done. So it was a got promoted uh, to senior VP position and everyone came into like this big ceremony that we did. And during the, the intro, it was Brian Fanzo is set for life in cybersecurity as the youngest that we've ever had this position. And I was like sick to my stomach and I like never get that way. Like I was very proud. Like, honestly, I'd worked like I had given up promotions to work on like increasing my security uh, clearance levels so that I could have this opportunity. I was also like this big believer in like the job, the role that I wanted required a master's degree. And I refused. I, I'm, I, school was a struggle for me, ADHD, um, which I wasn't diagnosed until after this, but um, which now makes more sense on why I wasn't great at school. But um, I really wanted to debunk. Like I honestly, the challenge for me that was left was this idea that like, you know that I'm the best for the job, yet you're telling me that I need a piece of paper. And yet you're telling me you want me to help you hire millennials and, and transform this industry. And when I did it, I was so proud. And then like the way it was positioned, I, I mean, I, I went home and like, it was kind of like a perfect storm. I had a transition contracts. So there was this like weird lull of like, Brian, you can work from home and do what you need to do, but like, you're not gonna have a contract as like the way the government contract works. And I, you know, talked to my mentors and I was like, dude, you stay with what you got. You got the highest clearance, you got everything you're doing. Um, and I, I give up, you know, the, the mother of my children, she was super supportive and she was, you know, we had just had our, uh, our, we had just had our second child. So we had two girls under like three at this point, um, not the greatest time to jump ship or do anything. And I just said, you know, I will regret for the rest of my life if I don't go after the job I believed was my dream job. So the dream job I've always had since college was to be a technology evangelist. Um, and Guy Kawasaki kind of like wrapped a nice little bow on that. I read everything he did. Um, hence like iSocial fans, hence my Apple fanboydom. Um, all of it had to do really around what Guy Kawasaki did. And like, and so like weirdly like that feeling I got being promoted and that knowing of not only complacency, but like, I wasn't going to be able to chase what I thought I wanted, um, which, you know, like then I got it. And then you figure out like, Oh, maybe it was blind on what I really thought I wanted. But like, um, that was really the, the, what encompassed me to, to take that massive risk. I will also say I didn't have a golden parachute or anything that like side company, but I worked, uh, the, the contractor I worked for was a European based company uh, or not Europe because they're a government contractor, the U S based, but they ran their bigger parent company was European. And so my like rollover days of days off because I had been there nine years was close to a hundred days off that I had like at my like disposal. So I, I don't want to ever like give like false context because like I, I put in the two weeks notice um, without the job, but knowing that I had like 96 days to like ultimately discover what I wanted to do. I ended up going and playing poker at the world series of poker. That's some like that, that was ended up being what I did, which is like a whole weird transition. Um, but yeah, that was how, that was my world out leaving government contracting, still having my clearance, like held playing world series of poker and you know trying to figure out where i could be you know a technology evangelist all right how old are you at this point uh so 2012 so that's uh, so I was, I was 31 30 30 31 so no wonder everyone's talking about how young you were to have gotten to that level of clearance like yeah that sounds young by government by government standards that's particularly stuff. very much so yes and, and i was very much that guy that was like oh i need to go this role to get that like i i had no 
like the idea of like job security, I don't think I was like naive to like its importance and value. So I took a lot of risks to get that. But yeah, I was very young to, you know, where I was at the time. But it also seems like you have in you this ability to like focus on a goal. And even if you have to zigzag the plan to get there, you will doggedly and determinedly like move forward. So you did that in a government space where most people don't. <laughs> so it stood out. But that's, that seems to be a, quir- a personality quirk that probably did, did well for you as an entrepreneur. Is that true? It's definitely a personality quirk. I would argue that sometimes it does well, sometimes it does not do well. Um, because there are some times where, and this is, you know, this is it, the last 18 months really working on myself. Like there are things sometimes when I become successful in something, I take joy in blowing it up to start back over. Um, and, you know, like that, and because, of, you know, and that's not always a great um, trait as an entrepreneur. And like also like becoming mature enough to know know that like is, is a good thing. Um, but also, you know, as an entrepreneur, like I was told like in the, that government contract world, everyone's like, Fanzo, we can't wait till you become an entrepreneur. Like that was like always, and I kept like pushing back and like, I don't really want to, like, I loved my government gig. And then I worked for this startup that has that, that technology evangelist. And I, I loved it. It was two years and 10 days. And I, we, we ended up getting acquired. And the day we got acquired, they came in and were like, I don't know what you do. Like that job doesn't make sense. And you report to the CEO and that's, and they literally ushered me out the door that day. Like it was like they, the new company was like, you're, and so that's how I became an entrepreneur. It was literally the like dream job, the face of the job worked. We, we were under regulated. We were about to go public. We ended up getting acquired. So I, had, I got like all this great life exposure. And then out of nowhere, it was like, you're done. Goodbye. And like, <laughs> and like that, and that was, you know, the uh, end of 2000, or the beginning of 2014 uh, is when all that went down. So like, you know, I left the government, got the dream job, crushing it. And all of a sudden was like, well, now you're going to try this entrepreneur thing. And so the, the reason I shared that was just because the hardest thing I've ever done was this entrepreneur job, like without, without even question. And in many circles, I talk more people into not becoming an entrepreneur than I do to becoming one. And I think it has a little bit to knowing like my own personal traits and knowing like how I work and like, um, but I think that like just the fact that like you we did this interview 18 months ago you like telling me that like hey that's a personality trait would have blown my mind because I up until 18 months ago I really wasn't aware enough about myself wow. to really be able to own some of these things. Wow. That's awesome. Like like sounds like you've been doing a lot of work. Now now I know what you've been doing during the downtime of <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> yeah. So um did you have a circle of friends that were speakers or entrepreneurs like was that part of your circle or does that, did you find those people like, I guess 2015 or so is when. Yeah. 2015 is where I went. Well, so weirdly enough, like 2006, 2006 uh, at the government role, uh, they had come to me and like, Brian, you're the only non gray haired person in this entire department of cybersecurity. We need you to get certified to speak at the Pentagon. And they literally sent me to a boot camp, a five day boot camp on communications. And I was the guy that did everything wrong. Like, don't talk with your hands. Don't talk fast. Don't, and like, like literally you check every box of like me doing wrong. But it was one of the ones where the, the goal at the end of the, the week was to uh, ins- have the audience move towards something that you select. And I'd always been good at like, that. That was literally my, so like, even though like I'd like, I mean, everything was wrong. I ended up passing it. And so I briefed the joint chiefs of staff every quarter for four years, like on stage. I mean, that's why like, the scariest stage I've ever been on was the first one I've ever been on. Like I, I walked out and general Petraeus and I mean, the entire, I mean, front row. And my whole talk that time was why millennials don't want to join you in the government. Like literally that was like the, like the, Hey, Brian, go out there for this. Um, and so I started speaking there, right? And like, I didn't think of sp- speaking just became part of that role, right? Even when I went to Iraq the first time, I flew into Iraq, landed at like 8 a.m. That night at 8 p.m., I had to hold court to the entire base that we were at about the cybersecurity protocols that we were implementing, right? So it was like a very, I mean, it was, it was one of those talks too, where you're like, everyone in this room is sacrificing their life, giving up everything. And I'm going to complain about being here for 28 days. And they're here for, you know, like, they're like my heroes. And, um, and so I, I had that. And then when I got the technology evangelist job at the startup, like we literally sponsored every big event that was there. And the CEO of the company, who to this day is the smartest guy I've ever met, despised being 
told what to do. And so oftentimes we would like, we did AWS reInvent. We did Gartner, a big event. He would be like, we would fly in and I would be the guy that's supposed to run the show floor. He'd, he'd get the main keynote spot because we'd pay for it. And like, he would back out. Like he would just, he'd be like, nope, they're telling me what to do. Fans are yours. So like I spoke at AWS reInvent and I introduced the CEO of Netflix in 2013. Like, I mean, it was like, and at the time it was like, like, hey, we bought this spot. Brian's going to go up and talk about, you know, cloud computing or whatever our topics were. And, but weirdly, like now I have so many friends that saw me then, but I was always like the guy that was the evangelist guy that was like, I don't really know what he's doing, but he's on every stage and he's everywhere. And so the speaking, the speaking piece of it was actually funny enough. I couldn't get on a side stage of a side stage of a side stage when I became an entrepreneur, like, because I didn't document any of that. I didn't even know really that speaking was like a full-time gig. Like I saw Simon Sinek, I believe in 2013. And that same year, like I saw, I saw Simon Sinek, I saw Seth Godin, I saw um, Malcolm Gladwell, like, you know, at these events that I was at. And then I saw like the Mark Zuckerbergs, like some of the, the, and I never like, never thought like that would be like, there wasn't even like a weird, um, and it was it was actually um, Periscope Summit, which is kind of crazy to think about, right? So um, in 2014, this live streaming tool comes out, right? And it kind of takes over everything. And my followers and everything took off, right? And all of a sudden people are like, they just loved me ranting into my phone on live video. And the people putting on the event were like, well, Fanzo, you're going to be the, the closing keynote, like, duh. And like, for me, that was like the moment of like, wait a second, I can tell you, like, at, at that event, Grant Cardone was one of the speakers um, at that event, uh, Mario Armstrong, there was, like, 13 professional speakers that, like, and I was just, like, the, oh, I can do this, like, and I didn't bother me to, but it was, like, that encompassing moment that it hit me, like, oh, my God, this is what I was born to, like, this was it, like, it took all of that, and I didn't really have the circle, like, I didn't have the circle of friends, um, and honestly, I, I owe it so much to Jay Bear. Jay Bear saw what I, what I was capable of and what I was doing in that space and was like, like he, and I remember he was kind of like, I'm going to put you in touch with some of these people that you probably need to be in touch with, but like, they don't know who you are and they're going to get like confused on everything about you, but I'm going to bring you in this like eh, over. And I mean, I'm so thankful. You know, I'm, Jay and I still have the same uh, speaker agent. We share the same speaker agent to this day, but yeah, Jay was, you know, in 2015 uh, was the one that was kind of like, let me bring you into these people that can really help, she you know, shepherd you. And I mean, thank God, it's the greatest thing that happened to me in that in that sense. But uh, unfortunately, you know, and like, I wasn't exposed to entrepreneurs because, like, for me, like, I loved my startup job that I had, and I loved working for an enterprise company. Like, every time someone was like, even like the first time I heard Gary Vaynerchuk, I was like why would I want to sleep on the couch and sacrifice all that stuff and do all that crap that he was preaching? I was like, dude, I would never want, like, I loved my jobs. I loved the work. I liked security. Well, like I had to sell something. I would go train the sales team on what I needed them to sell and they would go do it. Right. Like it was like this beautiful world that I lived in. And I was like, why would I want to become an entrepreneur to run all that, all that stuff? So that's kind of how, like how that all kind of came together. Yeah. It feels like in a funny way, everything in your life was pushing you away from actually being an entrepreneur. But at the same time, you were building all the skills, right, to, to right. be an entrepreneur. <laughs> right, it was like the unwittingly. <laughs> yeah, and like I mean, my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned the candy company that we had. Right. Like I and but and uh, honestly, like the other part of that was because I didn't like like and this is even sounds naive too. Like I looked at marketers as mar people that enabled salespeople. I looked at entrepreneurs as people that couldn't get along inside the economy of a, of a company. Right, like I was and I. It, you know, I was, I'm a, I'm four, I turned 40 this year. So I was, you know, graduated high school, 99, born in 1981. And I feel like there were so many of that, like so many of those things that I was either too early or too late to, right? Like, like my bet, one of my best friends dropped out of college sophomore year because he hit the technology, the, the internet boom. And I mean, he made his first million within six months of dropping out there. Right. And it was like, and I was like, Oh, I graduated uh, college with a web design degree. And I was like, Oh, I can use flash and fireworks. And people were like, have you heard of WordPress? And I was like, no, I, I didn't hear of this, like, like this thing that's like transforming web design. And I, like, so I went out, I graduated college with a technically a degree in work that was useless because there was people that were innovating. So I think that had a little bit to do with it too, where I felt like I never felt like I was inhibited or behind the curve, but there was lots of things that just didn't expose me to that world. But it, it was also like, I think, I think one of my like lessons that I would give like, is I believe like finding what you love to do is beautiful. But I feel like 
if you can find ways to love what you are currently doing, that's like magical, right? Like I loved every job I ever had. Like I truly did. And some of them sucked. Some of them I you knew like were a boss that I didn't, you know, I only had one, one or two bosses that I ever really like didn't get along with. But like, I always was committed to being passionate and finding a way to love what I was doing. And I think that allowed me to kind of evolve, you know, as I have over these years. So first I have to point out that I actually, I don't remember the article, but I've heard this piece around people born between 80 and like 83. It's like this lost generation within because like they kind of have a little bit of everything, but they're, they're not like, digital natives in the way that people born in 85 and beyond would be. Yep. But they're also not like, they're not like eighties kids because they were so young in the eighties. Yep. That sounds about right. <laughs> so I've, I've kind of heard this before. Um, it's, it's, it is interesting to re reflect on when you showed up. Um, but I also imagine a person who's drawn to work for the government and that kind of steady job doesn't, your instincts weren't to become an entrepreneur, which is what I mean. Like, you were not going that direction, but now here you are, you're an entrepreneur. Like, yep. and I heard you say earlier that while you, you know, you, you had this statement about like, you know, love what you love, love what you're doing, but you also tend to make things huge and then blow them up. <laughs> so, yep. you know, you love, I think you love the building. Is this? I do. Yeah. So, and I love, I love the proving of people wrong, right? That when yeah. someone tells me, I can't, right? Like the speaking business, you know, immediately as I built my speaker network, everyone was like, you don't, you haven't like run a company, you don't have a book and you don't have an agent, you know, agent or bureau, you'll never make six figures. I was like, oh, thanks. That's gonna be my goal. Like literally it was like, like honestly, my first podcast, I went and spoke and I asked a question. It was Lewis Howes, John Lee Dumas and a couple other people, uh, Pat Flynn um, and who are like, the heroes of podcasting and I raised my hand and, and they'll vouch for this because we joke about it now, but I raised my hand. I was like, Hey, like you say you have to have a niche uh, to have it be successful in a podcast. And I was like, but I don't have one. Like I'm someone that loves to do a lot of things. And it was John Lee who like grabs the microphone and goes, uh, then um, sit down and stop thinking about going a podcast, go find a niche first. And I was like, Oh, so I literally created a podcast called smack talk, which stood for social mobile analytics and cloud. I was diverse of topic. I was like, oh, you, I can't be successful, right? I got my first sponsorship. Adobe ended up sponsoring it. And then IBM sponsored it. Um, and I owe a lot to them. Now, I will tell you, they were probably right in like the long-term scheme of what I was trying to do. But to your point, um, I've, and, and I think a lot of people assume when you like to be the person that proves people wrong, that you were someone that dealt with a lot of adversity when you were younger. And I was not really like, I, like I was very blessed. My parents, you know, very loving. We were very well off. I, uh, but I, I believe part of that, like that yearning for that was just like that commitment to always doing, always pushing the level and always being the one that's not afraid to, you know, bring the groups together, right? Like the very first house party that we ever had with the hockey team and my fraternity, everyone was like, dude, this is not going to work. Like, this is like the worst of like, and, and just like the two worlds. And I remember being like that, like that night, like I bought, like I hid things around the house that were like, well, if this group doesn't like this group, I can at least like make them happy and keep them separated. But it ended up being like beautiful. And like to this day right now, the hockey house is next to the house of my fraternity at my college because of all of that work that was, you know, at the time. Um, so it's interesting like, to see how all those kind of things fall together. I'd love to talk a little bit about, about the network part of it because, um, I think it was, it was being very well networked, like you've got a great community around you. So I'm kind of curious, you know, you've got that sort of inner circle of people that you're always going to stay in touch with. And, you know, even if it's like six months or a year, it's a good rhythm. And then you've got that second and sort of third layers out, the people you might see once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago on a project, but you don't really have a reason to work with them right now. But these are people you like, you, you like them, they like you. How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections? Do you have any like habits, philosophies, practices that help you stay in touch? So since 2005, I've done the same thing every week since 2005. So this is, this is the, so it was, uh, I give credit to Sandeep Call, who was like my reverse mentor. And, um, and, who, and, and I, the weirdest thing that come a mentor, the fire alarm went off. I'm, I'm working for the company for not even a full year yet. And we got our trays at like the lunch in our, in our building here in Washington, DC. And the, the fire alarm went off and we like take our trays and I walk outside. I'm standing there next to someone. And I like, was like, holding my tray, which this wouldn't surprise anybody, holding my tray, like trying to grab my Blackberry to like, like scroll something on my Blackberry. And the guy standing next to me who I didn't know at the time was just like, 
you're really dedicated to doing that BlackBerry. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, show me how you're doing that. Well, he ends up being the senior VP, the second in charge of our entire company. Um, and he, he kind of like, we end up having like this like really cool connection. And he's like, hey, I need you to help me learn Facebook and understand my BlackBerry. And I'll get you in boardroom meetings that you have no business in being in. Now, I will tell you for 15 years. So he retired about six years later. Um, and then I left the... For 15 years, we did a SWOT analysis every quarter together where I would help him, even after he retired and he was going through a lot of his things. And I will say um, he's come a little bit ill over the last couple of years and we've lost a little bit of touch um, as of recently. Actually, one of his kids I'm a little bit more in touch with. But one of his biggest tips was we were in this building and all of us, all of us that were working our tails off were on the first floor. The second floor was owned by another company. The third floor was for all the managers. And the fourth floor is what they deemed like executives, right? And he would always tell me, his like, he was like, Brian, you have to not allow yourself to be out of sight, out of mind. And he was like, I want you to put this on your calendar, Wednesdays at 4 p.m., which is still my Wednesdays at 4 p.m. He's like, I want you to put on the calendar, block off the hour, and I want you to just stay. <laughs> the title of it was Rome, the third and fourth floor. And his, what, literally what he was just telling me, he was like, I just want you to walk around. Walk around and run into people. Make it a point to be on top of mind, to be giving to... And to this day, Wednesday at 4 p.m., that, that notification goes off on my, my computer and it's emerged, right? Like now I'll look at my Rolodex and, and reach out, text somebody like, hey, just check in and see how you're doing. Maybe I'll go in to look at like my messages and be like, man, this person sent me a really thoughtful message and my reply wasn't. So I, I mean, since that day, so this 2004 to now, it is, and it's honestly one of the greatest things that anyone could have ever told me at that point. And it was, you know, I started to work from home and all of a sudden, like, people are like, why aren't you worried about, like, being outside out of mind? I was like, oh, well, because I have this thing built into my, like, weekly. And, and, and it's so funny when it goes off nowadays, right? It's, like, almost like a, it's, like, a great reminder of, like, giving, right? And, like, people ask me a lot about, like, like you know, how I grew my social media following or where my community is. And, like, my answer has always been, like, one simple, like, focused thing was the, the mantra that I've lived with to grow my following was, to show you care. If you care a little bit more than others do about that person, they'll remember you, right? Like, and it's been that, that's been my magic. Like literally it's, and, and it's funny too, because I'm the person that falls into, I want to please everyone. And it really hurts me when I don't please everyone. And I understand lots of people can coach me and they've tried. I'm like, if you're trying to please everyone, you don't please anyone. Like, oh, I've heard it a bajillion times, right? Um, one of the things I've learned in that was, my desire to please also had to do with my proximity to them and like my connection. And so I have had to shrink and expand my inner circle multiple times. But one of the things I think I, I, I say I would pride myself on, on like the outreach and the connection is that I'm very deliberate with, if I'm going to an event of researching the hashtag, looking at who's attending, going in, like if you looked at my notes on my iPhone, I mean, for five plus years, if I go to an event, I look at the people that are might, I might run into, I'll go to their, their profile. Okay. What do they share lately? What is something about them that are recently I, I need to know? Or, and, you know, and sometimes I won't like pull it out, like when I'm meeting them, but just the fact that I, I remember like, oh yeah, they have two young kids. Like, so when we're connect, like, and so weirdly, I think for me, that was like the, like that magic weapon of like, I haven't seen someone in five years. And they're always like, Brian, as soon as I see you, it's like, we haven't, it hasn't like we haven't missed a single beat and i and i love that right I, I cherish that but i will i will say i work hard at that right like it is something ingrained in me very methodically to be like i'm gonna go out of my way even being a guest on a podcast right like i i want to know that person i want to know about them i want to remember these things about them and and sometimes people like even like my, my like my team now was like brian you don't have to do that now and weirdly i've never i never the the day i stopped doing it is the day i hope someone kicks me down right because because it is like that and it's even when the when the uh you know march happened for our speaking world right like it, it hit me it crushed me it, it hurt but i like my initial thought was i mean i booked 48 one-on-one -on -one speaker calls to help speakers that didn't do virtual before create set up their web camera and do things right like it was like so easy for me. Like that was like, it was honestly, it was the fuel. It was the greatest thing I did because it was very selfish because it allowed me to give, which fuels me, but it also allowed me to like 
rekindle and let these people know that I'm there for them. Right. And like, I got a message just the other day and someone's like, Brian, I'm, I'm sending you a gig. And he's like, ever since the day we had that call back in April and you helped me with, I think he's like, I've been waiting for the time I can repay you with this gig. Right. And like, and I, we all, we all know how that works, but it's to me, that's the, like, if I had to give the greatest advice for networking, for growing a community online, for really success, to me, it comes down to just show you care. Like you just, and, it, and the bar is so low. Like it's like, <laughs> it's like to care about others right now. Like, it, it, I mean, it's sad, but it's the truth, right? Like the fact that I can, I can spend eight minutes and know a little bit more about somebody and make them feel good. And that stands out is like, what's, what's, what's our excuse for not doing it. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you definitely follow through in a lot of that, that people have fallen off of. I've also made a note, roam the hallways, like, like love it. And I did a similar thing when I had a job, I was in development doing fundraising and I always hung out with the program staff because they were directly working with our clients. Oh yeah. And otherwise my life was just a bunch of spreadsheets and it didn't have meaning. So I had to go find out like what was the work actually about. Um, yeah, and so I pick up fruit from like the local vendor and like walk around and offer walk around, right? and, and, just, and like my first team that I ever had for the data center for the startup I was working for, uh, we had like these food truck lunches and everybody took their food truck lunch and went back to their desk. And I mandated that you had to sit at a separate table than someone you worked with. And my team hated me. And like, they were always like, Brian, you don't force us to do anything. This is the, like, it literally was probably like the only mandate I had. Cause I was very, fl- like very lax on a lot of things. And it was, it was, wasn't until I left that company. It was a year afterwards. And one of the people that worked for me was now working for the U S government, like directly. And he came to me, he's like, Brian, I had no idea what you were doing back then. He's like, but you literally were like forcing us to be part of these conversations and expose. And I was like, yeah, I was like, part of the reason the company was giving us this like free food truck Fridays was to give us culture. And yet we were doing the opposite. We're like, oh, thanks for the free food. Let me go back in my cubicle and work for another hour. Um, And I think that's like, that is something that you're like, not only roaming, but like I, and this is like something that I've been trying to figure out in the virtual world, but like forcing serendipity, right? Like in a, in a weird way, you can almost make serendipity more prone to being happening. And that's, I mean, we know it, like that's where the magic happens. Yeah, I know. I've been having a lot of fun. I've been doing a, a no more bad zoom virtual happy hour since March 13th, 2020. And, you know, tons of new connections have happened from people who would not have met. And, you know, we, we let people move between rooms. We've been doing that from like, since the beginning, really. Wow. Um, so it's just been, like you said, like, I think part of that serendipity is knowing what you're looking for because you're more yes. likely to find it. But here, I got a wrap up question for you as we're coming to the end of this time together. Um, you know, let's say we're connecting a year from now. I know, I know we're going to stay in touch, but let's say it's a year from now. We're having a conversation and I ask you how last year was and you're, you're telling me all of your successes. I want to know what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Whew, that is an action-packed one. Nice, nice. I like the way we're going to end on that. Uh, what am I most looking forward to in the next year ahead? Um, you know, I think... Well, it's not often you get me to be that. Uh, I, I like this question because, you know, I, I guess I'll put it this way. Like, 2020 was not fun. Like, I, I, I went all in on virtual. But from a mental health, self-care, and for someone that, like, loves to see people succeed... Um, I would say, you know, for this year, for 2021, and as I look at like what I, my goals are and things that I'm helping is really being able to empower, connect and inspire others to realize that what we're doing now is going to make us all better in the future. And that to me is the, the idea of this idea that we're doing this in like in a bandaid and like all of a sudden we're going to go back to normal. Like not only should I don't want to go back to normal because if anyone that remembers 2019, like it wasn't great back then either. Right. But um, that to me is like the piece, right? It's like, it's like realizing that we can put in the time, the work now, and it's going to make, I, I mean, I, my bold prediction is the events in 2022, and it's probably not that bold of a prediction, but I'm going to call it a bold prediction. The events in 2022 are going to be the greatest offline events we've ever seen in the history because we're going to be so connected, so th- we're going to be so deliberate with the time that we're spending together and cherishing those moments. And I just don't want us to waste from now until then. That's like the thing that like scares me, right? Because I see it. And like, I mean, even a call I was on this morning, like just see, like I don't want you to run on a treadmill or think you're going to put a bandaid on this. I, I I really hope to inspire people to get the most out of this year, so we can make every offline connection the most valuable thing we've ever done. 
That's awesome. I cannot wait to celebrate that with you. I'm 100% with you on all of that. So how can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, so uh, I'm the guy on every social network that I preach not to be on everyone, but I'm on everyone so that I can help you decide which ones to be on. Uh, but I'm the same iSocialFans with a Z at the end. So iSocialFans um, is my username on every, literally every social network. If, if you find a social network I'm not on, I challenge you and and, and kick back to me and let me know. Um, and then my website is brianfanzo.com. So I have a um, some virtual uh, event videos up on there. I have a lot of new content up there. You can also find my, my two podcasts uh, on there as well. And, and my new podcast, Press the Damn Button, uh, just uh, season two launched actually yesterday. Yes. So season two uh, went live yesterday. It's an interview show, long form interview. And I interview different uh, people in my life uh, that have come from my broad network on what buttons they've pressed on their life to get to where they're at now. So I really dive into like the childhood and uh, adolescence on the little things that go on there. So uh, yeah, check out Press the Damn Button. And uh, this was so much fun. I, thank you for having me on. I tell you what, I, I do a lot of podcasts as guests and uh, I try to make the most of them, but this was, a, this was fun. Time flew by and I had a heck of a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Brian. All right, thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brian. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 233. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 225 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Years ago, I recorded a series of free masterclasses on topics like, should I write a book, book launch strategies, should I host a podcast, and discovering your ideal client. You'll find them all at robbysamuels.com forward slash masterclass. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash masterclass. They're each about an hour long and several include nearly 20 pages of notes. As a business growth strategist, I've worked with dozens of entrepreneurs as they refined their ideas, piloted new programs, and took their business to the next level. I've got an opening for a new private coaching client, and I'm going to be offering a mastermind again later this year. Email me if you'd like to be notified about these kinds of opportunities to work together. My email is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoy this episode with Brian, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.